Hey, it's my privilege to introduce our preacher and my good friend this morning, Cameron. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about how Cameron and I met. Uh, I went down with one of our interns, John McFarland, to a church in Texas called The Village. It's uh, led by a pastor named Matt Chandler. Great guy, good friend. He's uh, doing a great work down there in Texas. And so um, I, I got to know Cameron because Cameron was one of 20 lead, 20 lead pastors that kind of came around from the different parts of the country to come learn from this church and understand their culture and what God's doing. And so Cameron and I were in the room. The very first assignment we're given with this little room of uh, lead pastors is stand up, or actually we're supposed to sit down and uh, just share the vision of what is our church? What do we want to see God do in our church? Now you guys know, I'm so excited about what God's doing in this church. So I'm standing up and I'm preaching. I'm like calling out rain and fire to the kingdom of God. And like Jesus is going to move in Omaha in a mighty way. And they're like, sit down. That was a little too much. Well, I got a little inappropriate. Okay, so uh, everybody else goes around. They're very bland. And then Cameron's turn to get up. And Cameron sits down. And all of a sudden, his hands are going up. He's getting fired up. And he's casting vision. They're like, okay, bro, dial it back. And I instantly knew I love Cameron. Okay? And so (laughs) that's what happened. And so, uh, anyways, uh, we, we struck up a friendship kind of after that event and stayed in touch over the phone and tracked with each other. And, and I told him a little of the story, what God's doing here, which, you know, God's planting churches and making disciples and people are coming to faith, which is an incredible story that God's writing. So I said, man, why don't you come up and just see what the culture's like on a Sunday morning? And so um, he said he's going to come do that. So we invited him to come, and he's been hanging with our staff and hanging with our pastors this week, and we've been really enjoying time with him. So I want to let you guys know a couple things about Cameron. One, Cameron's the lead pastor pastor of a church down in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, they have churches in Louisville, believe it or not. And so they have churches down there. He's a lead pastor. He's been a lead pastor for five years. And uh, he's seen God do some incredible work at really a mid-sized church that's really starting to see some gospel resurgence. Additionally, uh, Cameron is educated. He got his MDiv at uh, Southern Theological Seminary, which means he knows English and Greek. I struggle to know either language. And so uh, he's educated, and that is to the glory of God. You're going to enjoy that this morning. And uh, Cameron, at 33 years old, is currently living with four roommates, all, all guys. And uh, he uh, is engaged to get married to his fiance Brittany, who's here. And so um, he's finally going to transition out of the animal house lifestyle into like an actual adult house with candles and throw pillows. And so we're very happy. We're very, very happy for Cameron. And so uh, would you guys please welcome up my good friend Cameron uh, to the stage. Thanks, brother. So... Uh, Cameron, thank you so much for coming and preaching. Let me pray right now. So, God, we thank you uh, for the gift of your word. And uh, we want to pray for more than just uh, a a nice delivery of a nice sermon. God, we want to pray for an encounter with you. And so, God, I pray that you would fill uh, my friend Cameron uh, with your spirit. Give him boldness and courage to preach this word. Give us hearts that are open and excited uh, to have an encounter with you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we love you. We welcome you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you, guys. Clap one more time for my boy Cameron. Give it up for him. Let's welcome him. All right. Thank you, Chris. Now, I need you all to pray me up real big. Uh, my church is not this big. I preach one time on a Sunday, so I'm running on Red Bull, Red Bull and some fumes right now. So y'all, y'all keep praying me up. Uh, Chris and I actually met on Christian Mingle. He's afraid to tell anybody that. Uh, there's a platonic section on there for bros to talk theology and bad hairlines and uh, not really. Uh, listen, I'm grateful to be with you today. I also have to add in that my beer game is usually not this strong. But because I am engaged and I do foresee a life of chevron patterns and monograms and decorative throw pillows, I've got this like Grizzly Adams instinct trying to get out of me before I get settled down. So we have razors in Kentucky. It's the reason that uh, I've got this beard though is because I'm trying to get that out of my system. So anyway, John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. 
and verses 1 through 45. John chapter 4, 1 through 45. I'm grateful to be here. And today I want to preach a message simply called Jesus Satisfies. John 4, Jesus Satisfies. So the reason I'm standing here today is that Jesus radically transformed my life when I was about 20. I went to college to be a fisheries biologist. I wanted to move to Colorado. I wanted to live that Rocky Mountain High that John Denver sang about back in the day. But he changed my life, changed the trajectory of my life. And a few years later, I found myself at a little tiny Southern Baptist Bible College in the mountains of East Kentucky. So I laid down that biology degree and moved to Kentucky. My family, my non-Christian family, thought I was joining a cult. Uh, My grandpa was saying things like, son, just don't drink the Kool-Aid when you get up there. Uh, When I got there, I was fired up about Jesus. I wanted to share the gospel, but I was a little bit hesitant. I was intimidated by that. So one night, I was reading the Great Commission in Matthew, and the Lord just put it on my heart that I needed to be sharing the gospel with more frequency. So being a naive new believer, I was like, dude, you said it, I'll do it. So I calendared it. I said, Jesus, in my little prayer journal, on Thursday evening, I will go out and lead a man to the Lord. That's exactly what I told him. So Thursday evening came, and I had scouted out the perfect place for my evangelism victim. There was a little uh, walking trail on my college campus, and people would come from the community to enjoy it. So I put on my running shoes, and I launched out in mission. And I thought that was living out the Great Commission. So as I'm running, and the miles are ticking away, the sun's fading away, and I pass person after person, runners and walkers and old ladies on wheelchairs, and I kept chickening out every single time. I couldn't get the courage mustered up to share the gospel. And by the way, as a side note, having grown some since then, I don't know if that's the best strategy, by the way, but in that moment, I thought, yes, this is it. I'm going for it. So I I get back to the parking area, and my head's hanging. I'm disappointed, thinking I've let Jesus down for not sharing him with somebody. And suddenly I look up, and this mountain of a man, six foot five, smoking a Marlboro, this curly, dirty blonde mullet blowing in the breeze in the silhouette of the setting sun. I'm not making this up. Sometimes preachers fabricate in case you don't know, but this is all legit. And I thought, this is it. I mean, he's a terribly imposing figure, but this is my one shining moment. Was I going to be faithful to the mission that God had called me to? Well, church, what we see in this passage in John 4, verses 1 through 45 is that Jesus is continuing to be faithful to the mission that God has called him to. As Gavin and Chris have been unpacking for you, uh, Jesus' mission is to reveal himself to the world as the Messiah, the Son of Man, who offers salvation to anybody who will put their trust in him. And in this chapter, he seizes a divine appointment, and he enters into another gospel dialogue. So in John chapter 3, remember he talked to Nicodemus, the religious Pharisee, and so now, drastically different conversation, this time with a loose-living lady known as the infamous woman at the well. So what I believe what's going on here is that John is intentionally setting up a contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. So if you remember, I think Chris preached on Nicodemus. He was fired up, by the way. I watched that sermon. That was a good one. Nick is educated. He's respected. He's orthodox, remember? But this lady, she's not schooled. uh, She's not respected. And she's immoral, as we're about to find out. So get this image in your mind. Nicodemus is the guy who's got the WWJD bracelet in every color combination. If you've got one on right now, just hold that thing up proud. I mean, 1995, here we are. Nobody. Okay, good deal. And... uh, 
He's also carrying his KJV and the crocheted Bible case. I mean, he's that kind of guy. But this lady, though, she's the type that sleeps in on Sundays because she has partied too hardy the night before. And I think John's trying to make a point here by setting up this contrast. Both of these pathways, whether it's uh, legalism or unchecked immorality, they're both a dead-end street when it comes to trying to find your spiritual satisfaction that we all desperately crave. So this morning, this story is for the overachiever. I mean, the, the perfectionist who's expending all your spiritual and mental energy just trying to please people. Uh, but today's story is especially for the college kid who just can't seem to let go of that pornography addiction that has you captured and you feel dirty every single time you indulge. And this story is also for the girl who seeks affirmation by showing just a little bit too much skin on Instagram, trying to get that double tap, trying to get those hearts. But even if you get a thousand likes, you still leave your phone feeling just a little bit empty on the inside. Maybe, here, maybe you're here today and you've been uh, promiscuous and your past is just incredibly messy. And you've wondered if Jesus could ever love a person like you. Well, if that's you today, you picked the perfect day to come to church. Because in this text, Jesus shows us that, wait a second, instead of the Holy One backing away from our brokenness and our ugliness, He runs to us with a greater satisfaction. And the greater satisfaction is Himself. That's the big idea of today's sermon. Jesus alone satisfies our souls. He's the answer to all the soul longings, the soul gnawings that we all have apart from Him. And so here's how Jesus satisfies us. Point one, so if you've got a pen or a marker or a mascara wand, whatever you're packing today, Jesus satisfies, satisfies us with his gift of eternal life. Jesus satisfies us with his gift of eternal life. So Jesus is ministering down south in Judea, and the Pharisees get jealous of his rising ministry popularity. So he packs up his posse, and they head back north to Galilee, and that's his home area. But in the midst of this return journey, Jesus has a divine appointment that he has to keep. And then verses 4 and 5 and 6 set the scene for this monumental meeting. It happened at a Samaritan town by Jacob's well at midday, which was the heat of the day. So imagine a scorching sun would just smoke a ginger like me if I, if I were out there without any sunscreen on. And since it would have taken him five or six hours of walking to get there, Jesus was tired and thirsty uh, from his journey. And so there's a theological word called the hypostatic union. You don't need to know that. But we see here that Jesus, in addition to being 100% God, he's also 100% man. And he gets tired and thirsty just as we do. And so look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Well, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for me a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So understand, this woman's reaction was well warranted. It would have been utterly scandalous for a Jewish man to approach a Samaritan, let alone to ask for a drink of water from their hand. So for past political and religious and racial reasons, the Jews despised the Samaritans. And how sad is this? They deemed Samaritan women to be in a, in a state of perpetual uncleanness. So think about it this way. If, if we were to see a Jewish man 
and a Samaritan woman dialoguing. It would be like you down at the mall or Chick-fil-A or wherever, and you see a dude out on a date with a girl. He's got on a Nebraska Cornhuskers jersey, and she's got a Miami Hurricanes t-shirt on. Can I get some of that? No. No, okay. Uh, I'm an SEC football guy. I'm a Tennessee man. You can tell by my accent. Uh, I don't know a lot about the Big Ten. That's Chris's illustration. She'll blame him if that fell flat. So anyway, uh, in addition to the baggage that came with being a Samaritan, there's also another reason here that she went to the well alone during the heat of the day. So think about it. Just like many, many of you ladies do, you like get up in like a gaggle and go to the bathroom together. Well, back in that day, uh, these ladies, they got together and went and got water together. So as they did their work, they enjoyed a social moment. So it should tip us off here, the fact that she's alone in the heat of the day trying to get water by herself. It probably means that she's a social outcast due to her immorality. So get this, church. When Jesus comes to her, it's probably the first time that she's experienced love and dignity in a really long time. As opposed to shunning her and ignoring her, he draws near to her. As the other man had, 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 the other man had done to her, as opposed to using her to gratify his flesh, Jesus selflessly serves her by offering her the gift of a brand new life. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now this would naturally have made the woman curious But she challenges Jesus. She pushes back just a little bit because they had good water. Their patriarch, their forefather Jacob, had put a really good well system there. And it had replenished their families and their flocks for years and years and years. But then verse 13 shows us the difference in the water he offers versus the water of Jacob. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Church, Jesus is demonstrating here that he's the better Jacob. He offers the greater gift. His living water is better than Jacob's water. And here's why it's better. His water addresses the woman's greatest need. And I would say it's our greatest need as well. It's our spiritual thirst. Our greatest need is not physical preservation. I mean, I pray that God keeps feeding me and clothing me, and I'm looking forward to getting married someday and having a family. But my greatest need is to have my sins forgiven. And to have my soul satisfied. And this is your greatest need as well. So a French philosopher named Blaise, I call him Pascal because I'm a redneck, but maybe Pascal, he said it this way, there is a God-shaped void or hole in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing. How many of y'all know that's true this morning? I've been there, done that, tried that, got the postcard. But only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ, can this void be filled? So this morning, what created things are you attempting to fill your God whole with? Or what created things have you attempted to fill your God whole with? For me, because I grew up really poor in the mountains of East Tennessee with a single mom, salvation for me was just to get out from under the burden of poverty, to have a better life. And so, man, I killed myself in athletics and academics trying to get a scholarship and to find my identity in that. And for the woman, it was numerous dysfunctional relationships. And so listen, church, God does give us good gifts like good marriages, relationships, and sports, and sex within the confines of marriage. 
But those gifts were never meant to play, take the place of God. You understand that the essence of idolatry is worshiping created things instead of the Creator. And we all do this before we come to know Jesus. But when we do do this, it leaves us empty every time. False idols, the created order, they make promises that they can't keep. So when I drank from all these empty wells, these broken cisterns, I thought I was getting life. But in the end, they left me devastated and disappointed and feeling guilty and hopeless on the inside. But the great news of the gospel is that Jesus can fill this void. In the Bible, living water is a metaphor for the the satisfying eternal life that the Son of God brings. And listen, eternal life is more than just unending existence. I think some of us have got like given heaven a bad rap. We think we're going to be in a diaper on a cloud with Cupid strumming a harp forever. It seems really boring, but we've got to think about a renewed heaven, a renewed earth. So eternal life is unending life, but it's also a brand new quality of life there and even now. We want to experience it perfectly, but in this existence with Jesus, we get joy and peace and purpose and spiritual fulfillment. And what Christ is saying here is that living water is personified in himself. Jesus is the answer. So here's what happens when you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. He cleanses you, and then he fills you with himself through the person of the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle that happens in your heart when you're saved. Then notice verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this means when we embrace him, He continually abides with us. He doesn't step in to save us and then leave us. He stays with us all the way until he takes us home. And when he's in there, he's continually refreshing us and giving us us that replenishing that we need. So our souls can continually enjoy his love and his peace and his grace. So Jesus alone satisfies our souls by continually giving us the gift of himself. That's point number one. So secondly, get your mascara ready. Number two. Jesus satisfies, satisfies us by giving us true security. This is point two. Jesus satisfies us by giving us true security. And this comes from verses 16 through 26. If you're wondering why I'm doing 45 verses, talk to Gavin and Chris about that. So don't, don't think like I'm just leaving stuff out conveniently. I've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So the woman is interested in the living water but she is still only thinking about her physical needs, right? And so as a a tactic to shift the conversation to the spiritual plane, and by the way, if you're you're trying to be a witness for Jesus, you've got to think about some strategies, some angles to get the conversation shifted to the spiritual arena. So to do this, Jesus says, well, go call your husband and come here. Well, his intention here is to expose her heart and help her to see the true need that she has. And what you're about to learn, all the drama that she's got in her life, would have made a really good episode of Jerry Springer and Mari Povich if those guys are still out there doing their thing. So this woman replies that she doesn't have a husband. And I can imagine at this point her knees are getting weak, her palms are getting a little bit sweaty, she can feel that lump in her throat. And then Jesus just flat out drops a bomb on her. I mean, this is the biblical version of WikiLeaks right here. Look at verses uh, 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. I don't think he said it that way. I like to think he did, but he's probably more kind and gentle. 
uh, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So if there were ever a oh snap moment in the Bible, I mean, this is it right here. Did Jesus really just go there? Well, Jesus did go there. He's got permission to go anywhere he pleases in our lives. And I know this seems abrupt for us and maybe a little off-putting, but Jesus went there because he loved her. Before she or us can embrace Christ as our Savior, we have to come to terms with our sins. So she does at least acknowledge our sins here, and she recognizes that Jesus is a prophet. But notice what she tries to do here. She quickly changes the subject. And in a very unanticipated way, she engages him in a discussion of a theology of worship. I mean, she knew some Bible. You know, this reminds me of a couple of seminary boys back in my church. My church is about six miles from the seminary. And, and, man, the most dangerous thing in the world is a young, immature Christian with a theology degree. I mean, and so all they want to do is debate like pneumatology, ecclesiology, soteriology, all that kind of stuff. But there's an unwillingness to talk about their pride issues and the fact that they're jerks sometimes and they need to be more winsome and loving in their ministries. And so her question for Jesus, it centers on an ongoing debate that the Jews and the Samaritans were having. They disagreed on the appropriate place to worship God. There's a whole backstory for this. If you want it, you can email me, but it's really boring, so you probably don't want it. So they disagreed on the proper place of worship for God, and the answer was they set up two rival temples, and so like north and south. It's interesting to me that Jesus goes with her, as opposed to getting the conversation back, but I think he goes with her for at least two reasons. One, in here, in the New Testament, we get a key piece of the theology of the worship that we should all be engaging in. He's teaching us the essence of true worship as he has this conversation with her. Then secondly, he's continuing to reveal his true identity to her through this interaction. So here's the aside that they take, verse 21. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we worship the Father. Then verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So Jesus said there's a day coming. In fact, it has dawned with His appearing. And the good news is we're living in that day. That you no longer have to assemble at one specific location to worship God. Place doesn't matter. Rather, place shifts to people. And so anytime the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God through Jesus, anytime the Holy Spirit's binding our hearts together, and when we submit beneath the Word of God, that's where God is. So church, this is foreshadowing you. It's foreshadowing the New Testament church. And we have to say, I'd like to spend a lot more time here, but the church is not a building. It's not an institution. It's the gathered people of Jesus. Now God forbid that this place burn down tonight, But if it does burn down, your church did not burn down. Just the shell that houses this church on Sundays burned down. You are the church. You're the blessed, sanctified people of God on your way to being glorified. So never associate church with a structure. That all went away with the coming of Jesus. And then in verse 25, the woman says, Well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Now, this lady wasn't the most well-versed theologian on planet Earth, but she knew that Jesus was speaking of the Messianic age, that he was speaking of the, the anointed one of God coming to bless his people with new life and new grace. And what Jesus is saying to this woman in this moment is, listen, honey, open your eyes. What you've been longing for, what all your people, all the Jewish people have been longing for, I'm staring you right in the face. I'm the one who can fulfill all your deepest longings. You see, the Samaritan woman had gone looking for love and security in all the wrong places. And apart from Jesus, we do the exact same thing. Who's been there? Just be honest with yourself. We've been there. I know we have. See, marriage in that day, it did entail a romantic element. I mean, there was real passionate love there. But for them, marriage especially meant security for the women of that day. Uh, in that day, women did not have the same opportunities to be the independent woman that Beyonce sang about with Destiny's Child back in 2003. I got a little game. I mean, I'm redneck and, and backwoods, but, man, I'm eclectic in my music taste. You know, Chris and I share that. I mean, I'm going to jam out to that, by the way, when we get in the rental car, but it's okay. Okay. Um, but even though a modern woman may be independent and financially secure, I think there still remains within women a unique longing in their hearts for love, committed love, covenantal love, safety, and security. And the reason I know this is that as a pastor, I'm often left cleaning up the messes of men who are not loving their wives well. I know this because I'm trying to get myself in shape to be a good husband to this girl right here, and I hear these things from her often. And just by the way, it's, a, it's the 11 o'clock service, right, or 11.30. What time is it? I don't even know. Uh, I can run just a little rabbit trail here. Guys, the only hope you have of loving a woman well is Jesus. I mean, we are Neanderthals. I mean, we're knuckleheads apart from him. We are selfish, self-centered, conceited. And the only hope you have of loving your wife well, or any woman for that matter God puts in your life, is to have Jesus transform your heart to make you a selfless man instead of a self-serving man. And God helped me to do that for this gal sitting right here. Because I struggle at times, just being honest. So... The Samaritan woman tried to find in this man, uh, tried to find in these men, these five different men, that satisfaction that she was looking for. But unfortunately, think about this, five different men have been unfaithful to the covenant that they made with her. Now, if you're here this morning, you've been divorced, just imagine going through that five different times, how devastating that would be. And think about this too. The man that she is currently shacked up with now he didn't love her enough to even make a marital commitment with her. So when women, and even men for that matter, I don't want to overlook. I mean, there have been some mistreated men, I'm sure, out in this congregation today. Men get broken hearts too. When you go through something like this, when somebody has not loved you well, this, the fallout is severe. I mean, there's financial hardships. There's physical insecurities. There's bitterness, and the list, list goes on and on and on. So here's what I believe Jesus is doing here in this text. Not only is he revealing himself to be the Messiah, but especially for her, and especially for us, he's revealing himself to be the greater husband. Jesus is the greater husband. And here's what I mean by that. When you embrace Jesus, he becomes your perfect provider. He always looks out for your best interest, and he gives you exactly what you need. When you trust Jesus, you get his unconditional love. Even on the days when we're unlovely, or we might think we're ugly, he continually, perpetually lavishes, with the, lavishes you with his love and his grace. 
And his love never falters or fades like so many human loves do. And when you embrace Jesus, he becomes completely committed to you. You never have to worry about him bailing on you, copping out. When you drink the living water, trusting Jesus, the Bible says you're at union with Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God. And Jesus forges an unbreakable and eternal covenant with his church, the bride of Christ. So here's what we have to get, though. In order to secure this covenant, Jesus had to shed his blood. It's a free gift to us, but it was incredibly costly to Jesus to give us this kind of security. So the disciples finally come back from their food run, and they make it back to the well, and they are indeed perplexed that Christ is talking to the woman at the well, but like a bunch of dudes, all they care about is one thing, food. They've made a McDonald's run, they got Jesus' Big Mac, his Happy Meal, and they're trying to get him to eat it. And look at verse 31, they're pressing Then in verse 32, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. You know, they thought that somebody else had already slipped in some chicken nuggets in this moment. And then verse 34 says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So City Light, understand that Christ's foremost concern is not his personal and physical preservation. Rather, his primary concern is the spiritual preservation of all the thirsty and the lost and the longing souls that he sees around him. He tells his disciples to raise their eyes and to see that the fields are white with harvest. In order to provide this spiritual preservation, living water for all the thirsty souls, Jesus had to sacrifice himself physically. That's the great work that God called him to do. He sent his son to die on the cross so all humanity could have hope in him. See, the reason we have a restlessness, an empty gnawing in our souls, is that we were created for a relationship with God. He wired us to worship him. But our sins separate us from God, and the Bible is even so bold to say that, apart from Jesus, we're enemies of God. We're at ought with God. And for God to be a just God, he has to punish sin. So in our natural condition, apart from Jesus, we're going to bear the wrath of God someday if we don't repent. That's not a popular message these days, but that's biblical truth. Now, Jeremiah 2.13 puts our plight this way. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Church, because of God's great love for you, and out of his desire to have a renewed relationship with you, Jesus Christ sent his son to die for your sins and to pay the penalty that we deserve to die because of our sins. Jesus was forsaken so all of us could be forgiven. He was broken and poured out so that we could have living water, so we could be washed and made clean. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God so we could have eternal security, so that we'll never have to be spiritually thirsty again. And that's point number three. It should come up. I worked into it backwards. Uh, Preachers are sneaky like that sometimes. So point number three, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God to secure our salvation. So for Christ to be your satisfaction, for him to be your Savior, all you have to do is turn from your sins and trust in him. It's not about good works or being a good person. You just turn and trust. You know, the Bible sums up salvation with these two words, repent 
and believe. Turn and trust Jesus. And I hope you've done that. If you haven't, I invite you now in this moment to trust him, to bow your heart low to Jesus. But after you've drank from this living water, God doesn't call you just to sit in a chair or pew for the rest of your days. Once he fills us, he sends us out to be water boys and water girls carrying his living water to others. So here's point number four. After Jesus saves us, he sends us out. Once Christ satisfies us, he sends us out with his good news to satisfy the longing people all around us. So this one goes quick. Verse 29 tells us that after the woman discovered that Jesus was the Messiah, she was compelled to go back to her hometown and to share the good news with other people. And verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And then check out verse 41 and a portion of verse 42. And many more believed because of his word. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I mean, so get this. This weak woman, despised, discredited, she takes her testimony coupled with the word of Christ and she goes back to her hometown and many, many other Samaritans come to know the same Christ that she just got introduced to. So here's what I'm trying to say. If you know Jesus, if you've been transformed by the gospel, he enlists you to take this good news to others so that they too might have the same chance at transformation. And it's not a duty. It shouldn't just be an obligation. I mean, the Great Commission is a commandment, but it should be our privilege and our joy to take his gospel out. I mean, Brittany and I got engaged not too long ago, and you didn't have to pry it out of me that I now had a fiancé. I mean, I'm 33 for crying out loud. I was thrilled that I finally talked somebody into marrying me. It was on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Vine. I mean, any outlet I could get, it was out there that I had a beautiful young lady about to become my wife. And so we should go out with the same joy and passion and fervency for the love that we have with Jesus, desiring to share that with other people. Now, the reason I have to challenge you in that way is that when you're a Christian, sometimes you get some mileage underneath your feet, and there's a tendency, a propensity to retreat, to get comfortable, and just to kind of hang out in this really weird Christian subculture. And you know what I'm talking about. Maybe this is you. You only buy your books at Lifeway. You only listen to K-Love. You have that out here, right? Positive, encouraging K-Love. Okay. Um, you know, like the Now CD, there's like 47 of them. You get the Wow worship CD, you know, and instead of that. Uh, you own some neckties, but every necktie has like a biblical scene on them. I, I'll never forget this. When I first became a Christian, why did I do stuff like this? I bought a t-shirt, and instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, it said a breadcrumb, a breadcrumb and fish, you know, talking about the uh, feeding of the 5,000. I mean, I thought I was all that. You know, your favorite actress, Kurt Cameron, your favorite athlete is Tim Tebow, and you only eat Christian chicken at Chick-fil-A. I mean, that's the world we live in sometimes. Now, and worst of all, here, worst of all here's the serious point. Uh, you can't name a single unbeliever that you now have a significant relationship with. That's the sad news. I did a survey not too long ago at my church, some of our core people, and I asked them, raise your hand and be open and bold and not ashamed if you have meaningful relationships with unbelievers. Like three hands went up out of 100 people. So we have this bad tendency to hold ourselves away from the world, and Christ didn't cause us to live that way. Um, yes, we have to forsake some things in this culture. We have to use discernment to spit out a few things. 
But as opposed to fleeing the world, Christ calls us to take his word to the world. As opposed to getting out of the culture, he left you here for a reason. He wants you to enact gospel change in the world that you're living in. And in an incredibly awkward fashion, this is what I was trying to do on that walking trail in Kentucky, in those mountains. So I finally got up my nerve, and I approached the Marlboro Man. I mean, smoke billowing, almost died of secondhand smoke cancer when I was out there, uh, mullet hair blowing in the breeze, and I said, uh, hey man, how are you? I didn't know how really to kick it off. And I'll never forget what he said back to me. He said, brother, I've been better. Um, The reason I'm here, I mean, he just kind of spilled his heart, is that uh, my wife dropped me off. She was on the way up the mountain to visit her sister. And what she doesn't know is I'm also sleeping with her sister. And I thought that'd be an awkward family reunion. You know what I mean? (sighs) Smoking that smoke. And in my mind, all I could think about was real funny, Jesus. I mean, like, I'm trying to do this for you, and this is the first guy I get out of the gate, and see the woman at the well, I got the adulterous redneck at the creek size. Is that, is that how it's going to go? And so uh, I swallowed hard, and I prayed in my mind, and opened my mouth, and here's what came out of it. I said, sir, I don't exactly know what it's like to be in a situation like that, uh, but in my day, I've been in some predicaments with some women before I met Jesus, uh, but now I'm trying to treat women more honorably because I've surrendered to him. Have you trusted King Jesus as your Savior? I mean, just put it out there. And instead of him falling down and, bail and, and embracing Jesus as Savior, he mumbled something about going to church when he was a kid, kept smoking, and then he tried to turn the conversation. I mean, he was doing everything in his power, the weather, the birds, the flowers, and I kept trying to get it back to the gospel, and, and I realized loud and clear it was not going to get there. So finally, I'm frustrated. I didn't envision my evangelism moment going this way. And I said, listen, man, it's obvious you're not interested. Can I at least pray for you, pray with you? And he was open to that. And I asked him how I could pray for him. And he said, you know what? I recently lost my job, and I can barely make ends meet, so pray that God will give me some kind of job. And I don't know if this was the right technique necessarily, but, man, I called down fire on that guy. Like, I put my hand on his shoulder and I, and I prayed that God would give him a job. But then I said things like, Jesus, help him to turn from his wickedness. May he leave this sister-in-law. I think that's in the book of Leviticus. He shouldn't do that. And may he go to his true wife. May he repent and turn back to you. And so we said amen. And uh, slowly opened my eyes and lifted my head, not knowing what to expect. I mean, this dude was crying crocodile tears. I thought like a snake had bit him or a bee had gotten a hold of him. I'm like, dude, are you, you, know, are you okay? And he said, I need Jesus. And I said, you need Jesus? Really? And he said, yeah, I need Jesus. I mean, I was shocked. I thought that conversation was going nowhere. And he went on to explain to me that he had trusted Christ when he was really young. But somewhere along the way, he had gotten off course. And he said he knew what he was doing was wrong. And then when he lost his job, it caused him to bottom out. It made him feel like less of a man. So he's a blue-collar guy, swung a hammer for a living. And that's where his sense of identity was. And so when God peeled that away from him, it opened his heart up to receive his true identity, namely trusting Jesus Christ. And he told me that I was the first person in years that had talked Jesus with him. And he didn't even know if anybody had ever prayed for him in the way that I prayed for him. And it reminded him of that peace of God that he once possessed when he was a little boy. So we prayed again, and again, I'm really new at this. I'm Southern Baptist. We kind of get down at the altar and pray a lot. So I'm like, hey, brother, let's kneel down together. And we got down in the mud together on the trail. 
and we prayed together, and right there, he committed his life to Christ. And then I was able to connect him to a local church in the area, and as best I can tell, he confessed his affair to his wife. I mean, that would have still been a really awkward Thanksgiving meal, you know, that next uh, go-around. But so, City Lot, I hope you can see that, that Jesus alone satisfies. He satisfied the one with the well, the redneck on the walking trail. He satisfied me, and you can do the same thing. He can satisfy you if you don't know him. And some other glorious news is that he loves to use flawed, insecure people like us to take his gospel to others. So two questions. Are you trusting in Jesus? Have you forsaken your sins and turned to him for the living water that only he can give? And if you have, are you strategically and winsomely leveraging your life to take this living water to others? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this great church. And as I look out across this congregation, I am sure there are countless stories of the way you have filled people with your presence. You've saved them from their sins, and for that we rejoice. But God, if people have not yet drank of your good water, the better water, may they do so now. Even where they're sitting, may they turn from their sins and trust in you. And God, as you already have been doing, keep mobilizing these people. Uh, Keep helping them live for the sake of your kingdom. Keep, Keep increasing their gospel influence so other people around us can know you as the soul-satisfying Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.